my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together. You might have heard John, or Pastor John, uh, pray about our leadership and officers and staff getting together. You might have seen it on social media, or you might have known about it. We got together Friday and uh, spent through yesterday together uh, just to reconnect. You know, obviously because of COVID, we didn't uh, have the retreat last year, and so I thought it was just a really sweet time for us to be able to get together this year and to reconnect, share life on life together, laugh, um, but also to be able to dream. Dream about some initiatives and things that we want to see happen in the next three to five years. And so we're grateful for maybe some of the prayers you might have lifted up. Uh, Leo Shu, one of our elders, shared at the last, uh, at the last service that one of the beautiful things that he experienced at the retreat was in the midst of so much polarization and with so many different things happening around our culture and in our nation especially, he just shared how appreciative he was that we have so much unity and like-mindedness. You know, we might not all agree, uh, but even with the slight differences, we're able to listen and to be able to really hear each other out and to love one another in a way that is beautiful and is truly a picture of the gospel. And really the, the most tension and the biggest argument we had about was uh, whether it was MJ or LeBron being the GOAT. And so, you know, we got more laughter at the first service. <laughs> you guys don't care. But um, tr- clearly it is Jordan, and so I think we all agreed, or at least I forced all of our officers to agree that Jordan is the GOAT. Anyway, with that, turn your Bibles to... 1 Samuel chapter 25, 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you're using a church Bible, we have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you, and if you're using that, turn to page 247, and uh, we're going to be looking at this chapter, the entirety of it. It's a long chapter, so we're not going to read everything, so keep your Bibles open, and we'll kind of follow along in the story and see what the Lord has to speak to us about, just to... Catch us up on where we're at so far. Maybe you're visiting or you've been with us and you've already forgotten what happened last week. David finds himself, he's the king-elect, he's God's anointed, but he finds himself in the wilderness because the current king, King Saul, wants him dead. And he's searching for him in order to kill him. And starting in chapter 21, what we saw was that from chapter 21, all the way to the end of this book, 1 Samuel, there are 15 wilderness narratives, 15 stories of David fleeing from Saul, of him being in the wilderness, and the big flashing neon sign that we are seeing throughout this wilderness story is that God is faithful. God's faithful. God's providence reigns even in dire situations where David finds himself in the wilderness. God is faithful to protect and to provide for David, even when it seems like he's not. And what we're going to see here this morning is that the situation only gets worse. Because as we'll read in verse 1, Samuel dies. The, The name that the book is after Samuel, the prophet, the priest, the judge, he dies. And the question that we as readers should ask ourselves and the original audience would have asked themselves is, is God going to continue to be faithful? Is God going to speak when God's anointed man, Samuel, who has 
brought his word to God's people, who has been the prophet, who's been the priest, who has judged, will God still be present and faithful to his people? And even as this situation gets dire that we'll read here in chapter 25, what we will see is that God is faithful. God's providence still reigns even when things get so ugly. And that's what we're going to read here. And it comes sometimes, as we'll see, through unexpected people that God saves and God, is, and God provides. So let me pray for us before we dig into God's word this morning. Lord, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts so that you might speak to us and that we might not only listen, but that you would plant seeds in our hearts so that we might be transformed by the gospel in your timing. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right around the holidays, uh, this was right before Christmas, on a Saturday morning, one of the rare days where I actually got to sleep in, I received a phone call on my cell phone. And it was a number that I didn't recognize, and usually I ignore it, but I picked up. And I'm not a morning person. I was super sleepy, tired, and groggy. And the person on the other line was my credit card representative. And the reason they were calling was because I had, back in November, uh, reported some fraud that was on our credit card bill. There was all of these purchases of computers and TVs and Uber rides that so someone had taken. And I finally found out because someone had ordered $250 of pizza at Jimmy John's, or Jimmy John's, at uh, Papa John's. And so this person was calling me to report on the fraud that I had reported. But the problem was the representative, instead of asking me questions, went on the loose and basically started, basically started calling me out that I was lying about all of the fraudulent purchases that were being made that I was lying and that it was me that had done it. Now, because my character was being attacked, I got angry. I got defensive. And I let this representative know this is not how you treat your customer, especially when you are paying $450 for this credit card. I deserved better. But the irony was I was chewing this person out and treating her poorly as well. Now, I share this story because David, as we'll see in this story, lashes out. He loses his temper and he is angry because of the way a certain fellow treats David. And as we look at the story, what I want us to see is that we need to be reminded that as under any right circumstances, under the right conditions, in a right moment, we are all capable of exploding. The question for us is, what will save us? I needed my wife, Hannah, to save me from basically tearing this person apart. Who will save us? And that's what we're going to see this morning, that it comes through an unexpected person. So read along with me, starting in verse 1, and we'll kind of jump around. But we'll find out right here why David gets so angry. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. 
Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus, this is how you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this. Now pause a moment. Clearly you see why David's going to explode. Now remember, David's in the wilderness and he's gathered about 600 men with him. And these men are in the wilderness and they're hungry. They have no food. They barely have any supplies. And so one of the things that we see is it makes sense that he comes to this wealthy man named Nabal who has means. It's interesting to even see how Nabal is introduced in this story, right? We're not given his name first. What we're described as a man who is absolutely wealthy and rich. He's got 3,000 sheep. He's got 1,000 goats. Now, we don't know what that looks like today, but we know he's a wealthy man, and he owns a lot of land. Now, the other thing that David is trying to communicate to Nabal is that there was this customary gesture that if David and his men were out in the land and the field that Nabal owned in the wilderness, and they were taking care of his property— with thieves and predators that would attack sheep and goats. This is what David and his company was doing. There was this customary gesture that if I was protecting your land and your sheep, you then, as a landowner, would give food and gifts to the men that were taking care and protecting your land. Included is also that this is a feast. This sheep shearing was work, but it was also this yearly annual feast that would happen. And so David, knowing this, with all of the customary gestures that would be going on in their culture, David would have expected to be treated kindly for the services that they were providing Nabal. But what does Nabal do? Nabal acts, instead of with kindness... And with favor, he acts like a fool. He acts like a fool. This is, his, this is his response to David's men. Who is David? Now, this isn't, he's not asking because he doesn't know who David is. It's, it's a taunt. He's trash talking. He's saying, he's saying, who does David think he is? 
Because he knows who he is. He says he's the son of Jesse. And he even refers to how David left King Saul. Like there, I've heard of these servants that leave their master. And Nabal, instead of kindness and generosity, acts like a fool with foolishness. Now the thing we have to realize here about Nabal also is that his name actually meant fool. (laughs) Now I'm pretty sure his parents didn't name him fool. And we actually don't know. Scholars have no idea where that name, what the original name meant. But we know that he acts like a fool. And at this point, as the author writes it, his name means fool. Now, how does David respond when his men come back to report on how Nabal has answered them? Well, let's read on, verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now jump down to verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, if you just think about this, we can understand and sympathize with David, but here's the problem. If David acts on what he's about to do in killing not only Nabal, but all of his men and all of his family and everyone that's connected to Nabal, He's responding to the fool that Nabal is as a fool with his own foolishness. In other words, David is in danger to become a Nabal himself. He's gone from being a victim, and rightly so in the way that Nabal treated him, to potentially becoming a victimizer. Remember last week, if you were here, Pastor John preached on chapter 24. And David is hiding in a cave, running away from Saul. And Saul finds himself in the same cave that David is in, relieving himself, using the bathroom in the cave. (coughs) And David could justify the fact that here, here's a man who's trying to kill me. I have all the right to kill him. And his men even tell David, you need to kill him. God has brought him to you to kill. But David with grace, with patience, with trust in God, in his providence, doesn't kill him. But here, one chapter later, Nabal's not trying to kill him. Nabal just basically gave him a slight, treated him poorly, wasn't generous. And what does David find himself doing? He wants to go seek blood and kill everyone related to Nabal including Nabal himself. Aren't we like that sometimes? One moment you're patient, you're kind, you're willing to trust the Lord in a really hard circumstance, but then a split second later, or a day later, or a month later, you find yourself in a very similar predicament, and what do you do? You lash out. You don't trust the Lord's providence. 
And here, this is what David is doing. This is what Eugene Peterson said with regards to this story. David, who has just displayed the greatest restraint and tenderness with King Saul, now loses his temper and determines to kill Nabal. David, who has been able to see murderous Saul as God's anointed, can see nothing in Nabal's curses but an ugly piece of garbage that is stinking up his life. Last week, we're ready to praise David for trusting in God's providence and not killing Saul. But this week, he acts like a beast. And we must realize that this is true of us as well. Let me ask you, what weapons do you use to attack others? In a polarizing culture that we are in currently, in our nation, the pandemic and politics, what weapons do you use to attack others, to vilify who you see as an enemy? I mean, for some of us, it might be our anger, right? Like my story with the credit card representative. It was lashing out, but where? Behind closed doors with just my wife. And with who? Someone less powerful than me where I could exert my presence because they're just a representative. And I could let it be known that I have all of the rights as the customer. For others of us, it might be more subtle weapons, right? It's silence. It's distancing ourselves. It's gossip. Even think about sarcasm and the way we use sarcasm with others. It could be just passive, aggressive words. We curse people in our hearts. And what Jesus reminds us from the Sermon on the Mount is that when we hate others, we murder them in our hearts. But this shows us how deep our need is to be saved from ourselves and our need for the gospel of Jesus. What does David need? He needs rescuing from someone outside of himself. He is dead set to go and kill Nabal and his people. And that is what we see happen in the following verses. Someone unexpected comes and saves him from himself. After hearing what David had planned, one of Nabal's servants goes home quickly and doesn't tell Nabal what David has planned to do, but this servant goes to who? Abigail. Nabal's wife, and tells her everything of what David does. And so what does she do? She gets on a donkey and heads towards David and his 400 men. Follow along with me, starting in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make Lord make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Wow. What a beautiful, wise woman, as a storyteller tells us. What's amazing, and as I read this story over and over again, I kept asking myself, how in the world did Nabal end up with Abigail? It's the question that many people ask me. How in the world did you end up with Hannah? I mean, such stark contrast in who they are in their character. Abigail exhibits so much wisdom and beauty in this story of how she responds to David. Imagine the setup and the tension in which the writer describes the situation. David and 400 men literally have swords strapped to their belts, hungry and thirsty for blood and murder. And they think that they are right in killing the ball and everyone that he's associated with. And they're on this road to Carmel, to kill. And here you see on the other side of the road, approaching David and his 400 men who are hungry for murder, one woman, Nabal's wife on a donkey, approaching David. And what does she do? She gets off that donkey and lays her life on the line. It's a suicide mission. She has no clue how David's going to respond. She lays her life on the line and is willing to sacrifice herself for Nabal, her husband's foolishness. This isn't just courage, it is sacrifice. And that's what's so beautiful about Abigail. She's willing to lay her life down even though she's done nothing wrong. But it's not just that. What does she do? She immediately gets off the donkey and she bows and bends her knee and falls flat on her face to, on David's feet. Such humility. She addresses David as Lord 13 times. And she refers to herself as a servant four times. I mean, talk about a contrast of how Nabal responds to David and how Abigail responds to David. Humility. Realizing that David is God's elect, God's chosen king. She realizes that she's willing to humble herself and lay prostrate at David's feet. But it's not just that. What does she say to David when she's prostrate in front of him? She says, place the guilt on me, not my husband. Forgive the trespass of your servant. She intercedes for this fool, her husband. 
She says, even though she's done nothing wrong, she says, place that guilt upon me and forgive Nabal. And you think about this and you, she says like he is an absolute fool. His name is fool and he is a fool and he has acted foolishly. And I, and I, and I wrestle with that a little bit thinking like, is she throwing him under the bus? But I don't think she is. Because first, she's being honest about her husband. But secondly, she is willing to save, put herself on the line to save him, even though he's done foolish things. She honors him by willing to lay her life down for him, even though he didn't deserve it. And that is the beauty of Abigail, she is willing to sacrifice her life. She shows humility. She intercedes on behalf of her husband. But what's even more beautiful than that is that she not only saves her husband, but she stands in the gap for those who have far less power than her, who would have died in that city. She stands in the gap for those less powerful and is willing to put herself on the line and die. But she also saves David's life as well, who has so much more power than her. She is rescuing him from his own foolishness. And David recognizes that. Read with me in verse 34. Look at what David says. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male, Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David realizes that salvation has come through Abigail, and that her words are from the Lord. He says that, he says in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He recognizes that God has sent her, and God has used her, for his own salvation in becoming a fool just like Nabal. Such an unexpected person to rescue and restrain him from foolishness. And that's why I don't think it's a coincidence that this chapter began with Samuel's death. Samuel, the prophet who spoke God's words to God's people, the one who was the priest, the one who judged. With him dead, the question would be who would speak God's word? Who would restrain evil? Who would restrain sin? Who would God use? Is there anybody left? And who does God choose to use? A woman, a wife of a fool who is willing to sacrifice, exhibit humility, intercede on the behalf of others, more powerful and less powerful, and use her place to be able to save God's people. Such an unexpected person. So my question for us is, would we listen? Would we hear God's voice through an unexpected person like Abigail? And I think that leads us to our application. We need to find Abigails in our lives, and we need to be Abigails to others. That means we we have to find the kind of people who will be courageous and exhibit humility and confront us for our good 
and we need to cultivate relationships with them, but it also means we need to give people permission to do that for us as well. But all too often, we leave people an arm's length and give no one permission to speak into our lives, to be Abigails who are willing to lay down their lives and love us and speak God's word to us so that we might be restrained from harm, so that we might in order to do good. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do, and it doesn't always work well, is ever since Stephen was young and as our two daughters got older, I told them from the get-go, yes, I am your dad, but we're also brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when you see me in the house exhibit ungodly character, uh, ungodly actions and characteristics, you can call me out on it. Now they, you know, they, they take advantage of that, but I also get very defensive. But I've allowed them to be Abigails to me. Unexpected people who have far less power, who I'm willing to sometimes, but often not, speak into my life. We need those Abigails in our life to speak truth so that we might be able to flourish and grow and become more like Jesus. Now, David gets that to an extent. He does. But also not as much as he needed to. Because after David is restrained from evil and killing Nabal and everyone around him, Abigail goes back to Nabal to report everything that has happened. And when Nabal hears those words, he has some sort of stroke. And he eventually dies a few days later. And upon David hearing that, recognizing the wisdom, right, and the sacrifice and the humility that she exhibits, he actually proposes marriage to her. And she accepts, and she becomes his second wife. And then there's a third wife. And then by the time that David becomes king at Hebron in 2 Samuel, David has six sons, all from different mothers. Although David understood he needed Abigails, he didn't have other Abigails in his life to speak truth to him, to say that this isn't a good thing to continue to add more wives into your home. And this is what one commentator said. By the time of the Bathsheba episode, David had an ingrained habit of taking whatever woman attracted him and adding her to his collection. He had begun to take, and so why not take Bathsheba also? You see, what we see here, it is the beginnings of a sign that what David needed was fewer wives and more Abigails. And that's my call for us. Do we have Abigails in our lives? Are we Abigails for others? And truth be told, that is why we don't look to David as our hero. Though he is a man after God's own heart, we don't look to him. And we don't look to Abigail either. But we look to the one who is the greater and ultimate Abigail, Jesus. Jesus, who was the most unexpected one to come on our behalf who came from heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among us. The one who exhibited perfect wisdom 
who was wisdom incarnate. Paul says Jesus was the wisdom of God. He was ultimate in his humility that not he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Who emptied himself and took on flesh in the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death. He's the ultimate sacrifice who took upon himself the sins of the world, all of our guilt, all of our shame, so that we might not be condemned, but that he would be condemned for us. And he's the one that intercedes on behalf of us. Who said, as he hung on the cross, as he prayed to his Father, forgive them, for they do not know. And he's ultimately our salvation, isn't he? For there is no other name by which we are saved. Because of his death, his resurrection, we have life from our own folly and foolishness. He restrains our nabalness. Because of his death and resurrection, he's come to rescue us and save us. Church, we need Abigail's. But we also need to continue to look to the one who is the ultimate. And that's why we need this table this morning. Because here at the table is not just words, but it's pictures in words of his sacrifice, of his intercession, of his humility. This is the table that we need so that we might be saved from ourselves. The Lord speaks through friends, through other Abigails, but the Lord ultimately speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's come to the table, be strengthened in our hearts so we might be able to live this life not as fools and nabals, but as Abigails and blessings to others. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word to us this morning. Truth be told, Lord, I live like Nabal every single day. But thanks be to God who saves us and forgives us because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would find hope not in ourselves, that we would not despair too much because of our actions, but that, Lord, we would have joy and hope because of Jesus and what he has done for us. So strengthen us here at the table. Remind us of the life that is ours, not because of what we do or what we don't do, but only because of what you have done for us. May that be our joy and strength this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.